Uh, this is the School of Theology. We're doing the Doctrine of the Trinity, and we're on our third session together. Uh, let's open up with prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the mercies that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord, uh, the mercies of salvation and light and life. And we also thank you that he is the one who brings uh, good news to us, not only about the salvation that he comes to accomplish on behalf of his people, but also that he discloses to us, he teaches us about the Father. Uh, We thank you for this uh, revealing work, uh, that he reveals the Father and the glory of the Father on the one hand and then pours out the Holy Spirit upon us on the other. What an encouragement it is to our souls to know the triune God. Encourage us in these matters, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, uh, last uh, time we were together, we've been uh, introducing ourselves to the topic of Christian theology and noted that there are a whole set of different uh, major loci or topics. Scripture, God, man, Christ, salvation, the church, and last things are kind of the traditional broad brush topics of Christian theology. And uh, then on the doctrine of God, we have uh, God's knowability, his name and nature, uh, the Trinity, and then the work of the triune God in decree, creation, and providence. Uh, we talked about how we know of God through revelation, both general and special, Uh, The fact that the scripture is normative and history is explorative uh, down through the different eras of history. And we noted, uh, for example, that uh, Old Testament shadow is normative for us. New Testament reality is normative for us. And then uh, explorative uh, is the uh, opinions of other believers down through church history. Because we're not alone, Uh, we stand in the great fellowship of the saints in the body of Christ, both the Reformation medieval, or early church medieval, Reformation, and then the, uh, at times a bit prickly, uh, modern era. And uh, we've also uh, noticed that what we need to do is to look at, hence, uh, biblical data on the Trinity, hence of plurality in the Old Testament, uh, general New Testament teaching, deity of Christ, deity of the Holy Spirit, and then the historical development of the doctrine of the Trinity and and finally, a positive presentation. So that's where we are uh, in our overall approach. And what I need to do is to uh, continue working our way forward. We, we have gotten down to this point, and we're going to look at deity of Christ tonight uh, in uh, short compass. Uh, this is our uh, theme cartoon. Um, these are plenty complicated enough for now. Why not save the Trinity stuff for later? And so we have uh, the Trinity's present, but it's latent and not patent uh, in the Old Testament. So the fuller light of it, the greater teaching of it, is saved to later, although there are hints of plurality in creation and also providence in Scripture. Uh, We've looked at theophanies, uh, the angel of the Lord, in various passages, for example, in Genesis and Judges, our classic chair text about the angel of the Lord, who in the next breath we see that, that it's not the angel of the Lord that's being spoken to, but the Lord himself and there's some identification between the two that prepares us to be looking for something like the incarnation and open to it. And then with regard to hints of plurality in the Old Testament, we see threefold causes in Psalms and Isaiah. And I pointed you to B.B. Warfield's article on the Trinity. I won't be nasty and ask you that you all go and read B.B. Warfield. But, uh, you know, um, you all have a set of friends. If I said to you, tell me who your three closest friends are, some of you would say A, B, and C. And others would say, I've got so many friends, I, I never thought about which are the three closest. And you'd kind of analyze it, and we'd learn a whole lot about 
those three people plus all the others you were considering. And let me encourage you to have the same kind of reflection when it comes to the wider Christian faith and the historic Christian faith. You should have three favorite Christian authors. What about those of us who have a hard time picking one? One friend. Okay. Well, then, um, then you need... Then you need to join a book club. You need to join a book club and read good theology together. Um, for example, if, if, I, if you ask me, what Christian author down through the years have you spent more time with and have you learned more from or, or who are you personally indebted to more than any other? I, I wouldn't have a hard time naming who that is. And it sounds, ta- it sounds kind of trite to say it maybe, but it would be John Calvin. But there's a really good reason. I went to Edinburgh, Scotland to do my dissertation, and I got there, and within the first few months, the theology of the person that I was studying, his concepts were so powerful that as I began to read my Bible, I found him whispering in my ear. I kind of knew what he would say about a passage and how he would twist it in his own direction. And I said to my wife one day in a crisis, I said, Shirley, I've got to stop reading the Bible or I've got to find somebody to hold me by my hand while I do it. And I found this guy by the name of John Calvin. Now, it worked out very well um, because John Calvin has commentaries, lots of them, and I needed to read them all for my dissertation work anyway. So um, I set a chair in the bay window uh, in a uh, cold fall and winter in Scotland. And I sat in the bay window and by the flicker of light through the clouds, I read and read and read. There was actually a stretch where for over two weeks I really never left the house. And just John and I had a grand time. I did remember to eat and to speak to my wife, but um, it was just wonderful. I owe great debt to him because he, his commentaries give you the text of the Bible, kind of like the long commentary with Matthew Henry does. It quotes the scripture and then gives you verse by verse, section by section of the verses interaction. So I was having an older, wiser brother in the faith take me by the hand and lead me down the road and whisper in my ear about that text rather than having uh, the voices of modern-day theologians leading off in one direction or another. And he really helped me have my quiet time until I kind of uh, was able to purge my soul of the demons and uh, get back to normal life. But I just uh, I encourage you to have a list of two or three major Christian authors that you're very much indebted to and you recognize that and you enjoy reading them. And uh, at least one of those should be somebody who's not just popular, but somebody who, who actually stretches you a little bit. And uh, if, you, if you've never read Calvin before, I challenge you, get Calvin's commentary on John and just jump in. That's the place to begin. His commentary on John is absolutely brilliant. There's a very new translation done in the latter part of the 20th century. It's easy to read. In the Old Testament, they're doing some new ones now, some more modern language translations that, that are not bad. But, and it's not terrible if you have to read the 19th and century ones, but uh, they're a little harder, the these and nows and the sentence constructions longer. But uh, I encourage you to do that. Who else, who else would you name? name? Name two or three other authors you just love. John MacArthur. John MacArthur. A, and you know the advantage with John MacArthur is he's actually alive. <laughs> and you can not only read him, you can hear him on the radio. Packer, R.C. Sproul, Jim Boyce. Yeah, and, and actually, Jim's still on the radio in some places, so and on the Internet. So that's great. Yeah. What a blessing we have. You know, there was a, um, there was a 19th century Scottish preacher, uh, Thomas Guthrie, 
wonderful Victorian-era preacher, and he was sort of Scotland's Spurgeon, and people would come up to Edinburgh to hear him preach. Uh, there's a statue of him on the main street in Edinburgh. Uh, um, I would go to, to, um, to Burger King, and I would sit in a certain seat at a window, and there was the statue of Guthrie, and he had his hand. Uh, the statue of Guthrie had his hand on the head of a little child, and uh, the child was dressed in rags, and this was a ragged child. That is, a street urchin, a kid who, who either lost his parents or he was just living on the street. And, and Guthrie raised money in town to establish um, ragged schools, he called them, schools for the ragged children. And it solved the merchant's problem because these kids were always coming in and stealing stuff. And it was, it was a way of giving them an education and a, and a lift in life. And it was a great way to train them in, in basic Christian uh, teaching. And uh, Guthrie's remembered for that very fondly. But he wrote a wonderful little book called The City, Its Sins and Its Sorrows. And I, I have an old first edition of it. And um, Now, I don't have that because I'm sinful in buying books. But anyway, that's another topic. Um, uh, Guthrie, um, uh, one of the things he does is kinds of thinks, talks in this book about the benefits, at the upside and downside of living in an urban versus a rural area. And uh, he was just extolling the virtues of living in an urban area because you could actually have Christian friends. You know, you're not isolated on the farm 10 miles from everybody else with, before cars are invented. Uh, you could actually go and, and, and pray with a neighbor every day if you wanted to. It was a wonderful thing. Or, you know, and today we have such blessing, not only of, of living in a metropolitan area, but also with the Internet and, and with, with videos and things. You can hear the best preaching in the world. But there's hardly a Christian book that you can't get with the download of a button on some device, a, a Kindle or an iPad or a, um, a computer you can read online. Wonderful blessing. So we need to remember uh, to thank God for the time and the context in which we live and, and the blessings and benefits that he gives us. So I encourage you to make sure that you, that you have some good Christian friends that you read. And, and every once in a while, dip into somebody like Sproul or back, like Packer, um, uh, you might want to read another book by McLeod in, in order to be stretched theologically. It will be encouragement to your souls. Also read Christian biography. That's another issue. We all learn to live not just by thinking abstractly, but by living and seeing people who live and reading about people who have lived in very real and difficult situations. So read Christian biographies, too. It will warm your heart. Okay. Um, there were other hints. Uh, uh, word or spirit and word and wisdom and Shekinah, uh, plurality in the Old Testament and evidence of a coming divine Messiah. We saw that together. And then uh, we talked about New Testament revelation of the Trinity being uh, soteriological, tied to salvation. We talked about uh, the presupposition of the Trinity. The author is giving no hint of innovation. Uh, they don't use technical terms, but the substance of the doctrine is there. And even in the New Testament, the stress is on the oneness of God, which is a great blessing. Um, we talked about the synoptic witness uh, in the Annunciation and in the baptism of Jesus and in the Great Commission, great Trinitarian language there. And the Johannine witness, uh, such as the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or the Word was God. Um, I and the Father are one. And we pointed to the Pauline witness. Um, Jesus, uh, Paul's opening salutations are normally binatarian, where we mention the Father and the Son, or Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Um, in Ephesians 1, there's a threefold agency, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The beautiful benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, uh, where the order uh, is uh, mixed up, as it were, in order to let us know about the equality of the three persons. And then the identity of the Lord and the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The Lord is the Spirit, showing us about the intimate connection between those two divine persons. Uh, and there's a witness in the rest of the New Testament, for example, in the book of Hebrews and in 1 Peter. So the summary, again, was distinction between persons, equal in power and glory, oneness of the Godhead. Not the technical term, but rather the concept. You'd always rather have the concept. Because if you, if you, have, the, if you have the word and not the concept, then where does that leave you? If the word Trinity was in the text, but the concept of the Trinity wasn't in the text of the Bible... Where would that leave you? Yeah, make stuff up. <clears throat> you wouldn't know what Trinity meant. It'd just be a magic word. Now, let me tell you, I saw this morning news of the most dangerous book I have ever seen in church history. It is getting ready to be published by Zondervan. This makes my point. And I emailed, as soon as I saw it, I emailed Pastor Fred Greco, and I said, this is a problem. Uh, Zondervan has been doing these series, you know, Zondervan used, it was founded by a fine Christian family. And then they did what a lot of these families do. They sold out. And it has now been bought by some guy by the name of Rupert Murdoch, who's not a Christian. Anyway, uh, the reality here is, is that uh, they have been doing a series of books that are titled about the same. Three views on, four views on, five views on, ten views on. And you name the topic and they do the book on it. And you know when it's ten views on eschatology, I don't mind that. Because last things and people's, you know, pre-mill, you know, mid-trib, post-trib, post-mill, odd-mill, all these things are complicated. And having chapters by different people with different positions can be instructive. And then they, and then they react to each other at the end of each other's chapters. And that's kind of fun to read. And uh, then they did one on five views of sanctification. Okay, all right, that lets me know that, that our a reformed view of sanctification, I think a biblical view, is a little different than a perfectionistic view and a little bit different than a higher life Keswick view, and etc. Well, they're getting ready to come out with a book entitled Five Views of Inerrancy. And to be blunt, there aren't five views of inerrancy. The word has a certain meaning and history of usage. And the first chapter is the classic view of inerrancy. Thank God, I mean that quite sincerely, thank God it's by Al Mohler. And Al will do a fine job and it will be solid as a rock. The second chapter is by, what now? Yeah, and thankfully it's the first chapter. Yeah, and just tear the book apart. It'll be paperback. Tear it apart at that point and throw the rest. The second chapter is by Pete Enns. He was kicked out of Westminster Seminary because he did not believe in inerrancy. Welcome, welcome. And um, uh, that chapter is going to be entitled, Why Inerrancy is Wrong. And so that doesn't bother me except it's false advertising because that's not a view of inerrancy. That's a denial of inerrancy. So I think Zonovan has a little ethical problem. I'm mentioning the new book that was announced today, Five Views of Inerrancy. How many views are Well, the, the, the tantalizing part is that <laughs> is that Al Mohler's doing the classic view, which is really the true view. And then Pete Enns is doing a denial of inerrancy, which doesn't belong in the book. And then there's a chapter 
by Kevin Van Hooser, who's my old supervisor in, in Edinburgh, on the Augustinian view of inerrancy and it's a literary kind of approach. And that's the one that has, that has me a little worried. And then there's one on a missional view or something, which is going to wave its hands and say, I suspect from the blurb that's there, you know, all this inerrancy stuff, we really don't need to think about this too much. We're just all in the family of God and let's just get along. And uh, anyway, so it's, I, I said it, I thought, saw it this morning and I, I emailed Pastor Fred Greco and said, this is the most dangerous book I've ever seen in PCA, you know, in the history of the PCA. Uh, because it will tempt people, tempt people away from the classic doctrine of inerrancy. Well, this is yeah. It, the connection is this: every minister and elder, every officer actually in the PCA takes five vows, and one of those vows is a vow to the Scriptures as the inerrant Word of God. And if the meaning of the word now, now nowhere is the word inerrancy defined. In the vows, in the Constitution, in the in the in the Book of Church Order, or in the Confession of Faith directly, because at the end of the day, it, it, it's something with a historic definition, and they don't need to define that. But it could be becoming neo-orthodox. Oh, it's going to be a wax nose, you know. I bet you're going to end up with 15 different versions. People are claiming. They're going to be claiming the Yeah. So that's that's why I say it's the most dangerous book I've ever seen. Obviously, I'm going to buy it, and I'm going to read it from cover to cover, and then I'll and then I'll tell out the rest last four chapters. So uh, yes, so it's it's nice when the word is present, but the concept is the important thing in the, in the New Testament for the Trinity. Say that again. Why is the word inerrancy not defined in the Constitution? There's a chapter in our Confession of Faith on the doctrine of Scripture, and it teaches that the the Scripture is without error, but it doesn't narrowly define the word inerrancy because it was not used as a theological term until the 20th century. Does a confession actually define the type of inerrancy? I mean, does it spell out in, in, in so many words verbal plenary type? Um, those concepts are all present, but um, the way you go about arguing what the confession means with regard in relationship to inerrancy vis-a-vis that chapter is by examining the debate in the text of the assembly, the debate of the assembly, and the people that voted the assembly and what they believed. And there's just no there's no reasonable doubt that they held to you know the the what we would call the plenary verbal inspiration of scripture. Yes, good question. We did have in the in the 1950s and 60s, and I guess it it lasted until the early 70s. We had uh, someone from the West Coast who, how shall I say it tactfully? Let's see. Well, um, um, no, he was in that school of thought where I never met a word that I didn't like to redefine, and. Um, uh, what he did was tried to make an argument. Actually, he wrote a Ph.D. trying to argue that the confession of faith did not hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. And um, he was uh, chuckled at at the time by those who knew and was later roundly defeated in, uh, uh, by Woodbridge and others uh, uh, in their publication. So uh, it... Um, Oh, um, not only did he get his PhD, but he he took over a seminary, yeah, Fuller Fuller Seminary, sadly. So yeah, you've you've had this kind of insidious 
taking over Christian institutions by playing with the definitions of words. And our neo-Orthodox friends are, they're actually very skilled at it. Yeah, it's like, you know, for example, it's like somebody getting married to somebody else and says, well, yeah, we're married, but now that doesn't mean what you thought it meant. It means a little something different. That means you have to do what I say, and I get to go do anything I want to. You get that kind of playing with terminology. Wonderful current politics. That's right. That's right. And they seem to all have their intellectual ideas lead back to the Yale School of, uh, of uh, Language and Philosophy. So. Yes. Didn't that wandering of plain scripture sort of trace it back to Benedict Spinoza in the 16th century? And that's really the genesis of the modern corruption. So the book you saw at Zondervan in the arc of history isn't new. It's just a recycling of something we've all been listening to for maybe 400 years. I, I, think, I think a cogent argument could be made that it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, this is a, um, it, it really is an issue of truth and the use of language and truth-telling um, and who you owe the truth to. Uh, for example, recently I was interviewing someone and um, uh, they made the statement, um, I don't have a file on that. And as they said those words, they patted a stack of papers on the table in front of them. And of course, being the theologian that I am, I had to wonder, okay, now how do I exegete that sentence? Does he mean I don't have that in my file, that is, in my stack of papers right here on the desk, i.e., it's not right here, I left it in my office because I don't want you to know about it? Or did he mean nowhere in my filing system that I have ever possessed in the last 40 years that I've worked you know, in this area, do I have any shred of paper with anything remotely related to that? And... Um, uh, that kind of equivocal, potentially equivocal use of language is, um, is something that is very difficult to deal with. As a matter of fact, I, I have personal doubts about the efficiency of the church being able to handle something like that. It seems to be the civil magistrate is the only one that, where a jury goes, you're lying, throw him in jail, <laughs> that kind of thing. It's, it's difficult to, um, when you get off in these intellectual rationalizations. Yeah, well, it's that same type of deceit that's used. Errancy always seems to be the first crack in the wall. Yeah. And then the next crack is the deity of Christ yeah. with the same mantra. Yeah, and the, and the doctrine of the Trinity is wrapped up in that because at the end of the day what will happen is, is um, the concept of God will be downgraded and therefore the deity of Christ is downgraded or um, uh, the proper biblical teaching of the Trinity is denied and so you end up with uh, heading off into polytheism or into Unitarianism and you destroy the incarnation and by the back door they end up uh, denying the deity of Christ that way. So it's, a, it's an interesting ethical challenge and why is this? Well, it's all because we're sons of our first father, Adam, and our first mother, Eve. Every one of us here. Yeah, good point. All right, so um, we come now to the topic of the deity of Christ. And uh, uh, we have to start with a little epistemology. This is epistemology light. I apologize, but I think it's, uh, I think it's actually uh, helpful. How do we know it's a duck? Well, it looks like a duck. It walks like a duck. It quacks like a duck. Then it's a duck. And, and my point here is simply that things don't always come with labels. 
And uh, the labels that something wears should be in keeping with the nature of the object. Uh, for example, uh, we can uh, play the happy game. Who is this? It's Elvis. Now, if we just look at this picture, we say, who is Elvis? Then we say, it's the pretty boy, right? Now, that's a cute face, girls, isn't it? They're going, no, no. Yeah, it really, he is. And here he is singing, and there he is playing. And here we have him, I'm not sure what you call that, dancing or something. And here we have him uh, being a Hollywood star and, and, and a hit artist. Um, how do you know who, you know, whether Elvis Presley is the king of rock and roll? Well, the taste is in the, 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 the proof of the pudding is in the tasting, okay? It's by hearing and seeing and tasting and watching and hearing in this case that we know that, uh, uh, that indeed it's uh, the king of rock and roll. And in the same way, how do we know that Jesus is divine? Well, we know that he is divine for a number of reasons. And the first one is because he has divine titles. The second is that he has divine attributes. The third is that he does divine works. And finally, that he has divine prerogatives. All four of those are ways that we know in which he is divine. In other words, the deity of Christ is not narrowly a question of going to the Bible and seeing if the Bible says Jesus is God. Because, of course, if all the proof he'd given us in the scriptures, if the only argument he had given us was one verse that says Jesus is God, then what would the world do to that verse? They'd attack it, they'd twist it, they'd deny it, they'd redefine God, they'd redefine you know, we've even had people in high places redefine the verb to be. Okay? And the, so the point is, is that God has blessed us by giving us um, multiple channels of data and multiple forms of data that point to and argue for and prove uh, the deity of Christ. And so I want to run through some of these with you. And uh, hopefully then we can also do the same for um, the Holy Spirit. Uh, first of all, the title God. Now, there are different divine titles, but the divine title Theos is a very important one. And the New Testament has um, a whole set of different passages that teach that Jesus is Theos. Now, since this is the most important one, I want us to make sure that we bore down on a couple um, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And uh, our Jehovah's Witness friends who knock on the door, their translation, their New World Translation says, He was a God. Well, that's your first hint that there's a uh, problem with their view of the, of the Trinity and of the deity of Christ. Because in their system, in their understanding, He's just a very high creature. Um, the, the, the first and greatest thing that Jehovah has made. But that's not what the text says. The text is an arthrus, uh, and, and it does that in order to avoid, that grammar is used under inspiration by John to avoid polytheism or Unitarianism. He's got a Trinitarian balance, so he's being careful not to fall off the grammatical um, uh, ledge in either extreme direction. John 1.18, just a few verses later, refers to Jesus as the only begotten God. And in John 20, Thomas sees him and says, My Lord and my God. Now, he's not saying Jesus is my Lord and the Father is my God. He's making that exclamation about 
the one Jesus Christ. He is both Lord, he's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ who is, is Theos, who is God. Um, Hebrews 1.8, that's just a, a representative passage in the book of Hebrews, especially in the first chapter. You have multiple lines of argument for the deity of Christ, multiple Old Testament passages that are cited. But here is an example of the Old Testament used in the Septuagint Greek translation. It's Theos. Thy throne, God, is forever. And, and the verse is being used to refer to Jesus uh, Christ. So it's implying that Jesus is God. Titus 2.13 is one of my favorite. Um, it says, uh, the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the term and here, Kai in Greek, is a term which uh, pulls these two nouns very close together. So that which is modifying the last term is pulled by the, term, by the word and or Kai to also be modifying the term before. It's not the great God who's the Father and the great Savior who's Jesus Christ. It's the great God and Savior, and then this appositive identification of him as Jesus Christ is pulled back to both of these terms. That's, in Greek, that's called the Granville Sharp Rule, and it's, just a, it's a basic grammatic convention, uh, and it's, uh, it can be proven at great, you know, it, uh, it can be proven from classical literature as well as Koine literature. Um, it's the same kind of reason why, you know, when you're speaking or writing in proper English, you use your grammar properly, and that's what that grammar would mean. Um, and you have the same phenomenon in Second Peter chapter 1 with the Granville Sharp Rule. When you have the word and or chi and a positive statement, it, it, it pulls that term back. Okay, so there is, there is a, a sampling of the New Testament material on the word theos. There's a great work um, entitled um, uh, God... Um, and um, ooh, in about three minutes, two minutes, it will come to me as to who the author is. There's a, there's a nice New Testament book. Baker put it out, um, and he teaches at uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville. Good Southern Baptist brother, and his name will come to me in a moment. Anyway, there's another term, uh, the term kurios, or Lord. And here we have a whole set of New Testament material. Um, for example, Romans 1.4, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this title, Kyrios, in, in the Koine Greek context at that time, this is a title that's recognized as a divine title. Um, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 1, the name of our Lord Jesus. Uh, he uses an interesting variation of it at the end of Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the language Maranatha. And the term here, Maranatha, is not Greek. It's a... Um, it's printed in Greek, but it's printed in Greek letters. It's a transliteration from Aramaic. Uh, and the term mar here, come Lord. And uh, the term mar is the Aramaic term uh, for Lord. And so in a Greek document to, uh, to the church in Corinth, Paul includes at the end, um, an Aramaic explanation or exclamation that they would all understand, come Lord Jesus in Aramaic. And he uses the term Lord there uh, for Jesus Christ. The one he's calling for the coming of is not the Holy Spirit. He's not calling for the Father to appear. He's calling for the Son to come in his second coming. James 1.1, 1, 1, 
probably the earliest of the epistles, identifies Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. Just help me here. What does the term Christ mean? You know, a lot of kids grew up thinking that Christ is like Jesus' last name. You know, like... Greek word for Messiah. It's Messiah, okay? And it's, it's a functional title. Like, for example, I remember being in the Free Church College in Edinburgh when the uh, bread guy came and he made a delivery, the bakery boy. He made a delivery and uh, Mr. Bill Anderson said, thank you, Mr. Baxter. And I thought, isn't that nice? He knows the last names of all the delivery guys. Well, it turns out the guy's last name wasn't Baxter at all. Baxter is the, is the old Scots term for baker. And uh, so he was saying, thank you, Mr. Baker. And the guy's last name was not Baker. That was just what he did. It would be like... Uh, if we, instead of calling him Fred Greco, if we called him Fred Fred Preacher or Fred Pastor, okay. And you have the same at the uh, James two one. Now in Philippians two nine to eleven, you have the same kind of language that you find in Isaiah forty five. Um, uh, this is in Philippians 2 in the great hymn to Christ where you have the language of let every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is an allusion to an Old Testament prophetic passage. And in that Isaiah 45 passage, it's clear that it's the Lord who's being referred to. So Paul's usage of that in reference to Jesus, as well as the actions that are being described, clearly indicate the deity of Christ. Uh, there's the title Son of God. And uh, these are peppered all over the scriptures. Let's see if I can do this without overshooting. There we go. Um, Jesus is called the Father's Son or His Beloved Son, which is a way of saying Son of God. Um, he is called the image of the invisible God, uh, the firstborn. But Jesus Himself uh, speaks of His Father-Son filial relation uh, uh, to his heavenly Father. No one knows the Father but the Son. The Son, he's identified as the Son of the living God. He accepts that uh, language for himself. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And um, uh, he was recognized by his surrounding critics, the Pharisees and Sadducees, particularly the Pharisees, as calling God his own Father because, and in so doing, making himself one with God. Uh, we, we have a little difficulty with this in our own culture. This is harder for us to understand. But imagine that you live in a day and an age where the country is ruled by a king. And the king has a son. And you know, everybody knows. Dad's going to go to his eternal reward sometime and the son is going to take over the rule of the land. And they hope he's a really good guy. And uh, it's usually the eldest son that's going to take over this great role. And uh, the point here is, is that to claim to be the son of the king is to plain, claim to be the prince and the next in line and the one who, therefore, is of that great family. That's, in a lesser way, the kind of argument that this divine title is speaking of Jesus in a greater way with regard to, to deity and the Godhead. Um, a lot of us can go around and say a lot of really nice things about our, uh, the Christian author or the Christian pastor or, or the Christian layman down through the years that has meant more to us than anyone else. Think about who has had a more fundamental forming influence in your own spiritual life. And 
And we would say wonderful things about that person. But we would never say they're the son of God. Okay? Because uh, that's reserved for God himself. Now, the interesting um, parallel set of language, kind of inverted parallel, is the language of son of man. And this is language that comes out of uh, Daniel chapter 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And it's a scene in Daniel of a vision of Jesus coming back, or the son of God, or son of man coming. He comes with his angels in powerful array to judge the earth. He's the judge. He's got all the power. He's in charge. Every human being is answerable to him. It's an eschatological apocalyptic vision. Yes? Throughout Ezekiel, uh, the Lord was communicating that Ezekiel refers to him as the Son of Man. Is there any connection between the two of them? Yeah, there is, a, there is an interesting... Um, uh, there's an interesting overtone, but you have to discern whether it's a special title that's being used for someone. It's not yeah, I mean, that's the way we would indicate it in an, in an English text, is capitalization. Of course, in the original um, uh, Septuagint version, every, word, every letter would have been capitalized. It really depends upon context and how the term is being used. Uh, it's Jesus' self, favorite self-designation. And he has a whole sets of these Son of Man sayings, um, dealing with his earthly life, his passion, and his second coming. In other words, he explains his ministry to us as the incarnate Son of God in the language of Son of Man, which is, has an interesting irony because the, t- the title, the, the, the three words, Son of Man, is a divine title, but right there in the title is the word man which reminds us of humanity. So you can see why for the incarnate Son of God that would be a, there's a rationale to why it would be a very favorite self-designation because in it his very incarnation is being overtoned is the way we put it. As Christians, looking back in retrospect, we can see that that Son of Man refers to Jesus. But as, as Jewish people seeing this terminology when they were reading Daniel, what did they see it as? Well, we have to separate what Jewish people before the coming of Christ would have understood that term, that, that language to mean in the Old Testament versus what the sons and daughters of the Pharisees say. Um, and, and modern Judaism would not be a way to key into what ancient Judaism understood the term to be. We would have to go back and study that literature on its own or study that period as best we can from the artifacts that have been left behind and the writings that make reference to that earlier period. Um, And we do have some writings and material from the intertestamental period. And they were looking forward to someone who was a fulfillment of all of these eschatological passages. So in the the time of Jesus, this language is known as eschatological and um, language that they hoped would be fulfilled in triumph. And you have that whether it be sophisticated urbanites or whether it be folks who are isolated out in the desert waiting for the great judgment to come against the invaders. Um, Would it have been like the son of Adam? I mean, would that have been like a... 
No, the, the passage in, in Daniel especially was clearly eschatological, and so they were looking for some fulfillment of that and the triumph of their deity over all the other peoples of the earth, all the other nations being judged. From a parasitical point of view, Well, that would have been a general Jewish view in the intertestamental period. By the time you get after the destruction of Jerusalem and after Judaism recoups out in the diaspora, then what takes over as the major defining element of, of Jewish theology is a polemic against Christianity. And so then their views or their handling of Scripture is twisted. Now, what do the Christians believe in this? You know, believe about this and then we're going to stand on the other foot, you know, kind of thing. So it's not a, um, how to say it tactfully, it's, it's not a very neutral, it's not a theology that grew up in a neutral context. It's very much like, um, theology at the time of the Reformation and then the Counter-Reformation. You know, you get, you get the Reformation coming through and then the Counter-Reformation in, in Eastern, uh, uh, parts of Eastern Europe. And, and then you get the Protestants responding to that. And, and all sorts of criticism is laid at the, the Protestants' response. Well, of course, their response to the Counter-Reformation was controlled by the terms of the attack of the Counter-Reformation. Um, I, I don't know if I've used that with this group or not, but for example, um, the, the, the second generation guys are roundly criticized in academic circles for using Ramist logic. That this method of, of argumentation is seen as very flawed and hyperlogical. Well, of course, the only reason they were using Ramist logic was because their opponents used Ramist logic, so they had to fight them on the same turf. And um, the Ramist logic really flowed out of the Roman Catholic um, Jesuits more than anything, so they had to meet them on that ground. So polemic, theology developed in polemic, polemic on occasionally can be clear, sharper and clearer, but sometimes it's not uh, native to the text, which is a problem. All right, and, and we won't take time to look at all these, but I do want to go through this and then we'll take a break, which is we have earthly life saying, Son of Man has authority to forgive, he's Lord of the Sabbath, he has nowhere to lay his head, he's descended from heaven. These are about his earthly life. Then he has a whole set of passion sayings. He must suffer many things, he must give himself as a ransom for many, and here we have that combination of the Old Testament ideas of the Son of Man and suffering servant synthesized together. And let me emphasize one more time, synthesis is foundational in Christian theology. But this is one area where we as Reformed theologians differ with some of our more fundamentalist friends who just want to quote verses back at you, but they don't want to talk about what they mean. They seem to have a verse for every occasion, but bless their hearts, they don't really understand what those verses mean or how they go together. And we're, we're looking for the intent of God uh, behind the statements of the human authors uh, who were inspired, and therefore their intent is not overturned, but rather established. Um, and the second coming sayings, come in the glory of the Father, power and glory, uh, right hand of power, sending forth angels. Uh, all of these are, are, are son of man sayings, which is a divine title. And then we have divine attributes. Oh, my goodness. I guess you could use an Excel spreadsheet to create an exhaustive list in the New Testament, but it would, it would tire you. And the print would be very small. small. The uh, eternality, immutability, omnipresence, omniscience, sovereignty of God, all of these things are attributed to Jesus. For example, Jesus is said to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can't say that about 
somebody who's not God. Um, I lost hair this morning in the shower. I'm not the same forever. It's a statement about his deity. Um, and his divine works, he created the world. He did miracles like raising the dead. He had the right to forgive sins. I, I don't have that power and right. Uh, and he could judge men and angels. Um, did I tell you all that uh, I got accosted in Oak Ridge in the parking lot one day at the end of work? Church parking lot. man from across the street came running at me, hollering. And before I got in my vehicle to drive off, he got in my face and he said, They're keeping me up all night. Keep me up all night. And then they come over here and you forgive them. And I said, Mister, I can't forgive anybody. And he said, You can't. I said, No. And before I could say, Only God can do that, he said, Must be the Baptist down the street. He walked off. Okay. Humorous moments in church history. Uh, worship is a prerogative. Uh, Jesus receives worship. Notice, it's not just that men give him worship. He receives that worship and accepts it. I mean, uh, there was, John tried to worship an angel. The angel stopped him. Okay, Cornelius tried to worship Peter. Peter stopped him. But Jesus receives the worship. And he is said to be worthy of worship in Revelation 4.11. And so we come to the conclusion of the deity of Christ that he is very God of very God. So next time, by way of introduction, instead of introducing by going back to the deity of Christ, I'll just run through it. It's an exactly parallel argumentation with regard to the Holy Spirit. Divine titles, divine works, divine attributes, and divine prerogatives are all given to the Holy Spirit. And that's how we know that he's God too. Yes? Over the centuries, there have been lots of people challenge the deity of Christ. Why? What is their point? What are they open to see? Well, usually when people challenge in, in the modern era, and by that I mean since the time of the Reformation, when they're challenging the deity of Christ, what they're attempting to do is to cut him down to size and say that he's merely human so that they're just a little more comfortable with him. The, the very modern, modern approach, the more recent approach, is to turn Jesus not just into a, a man only, but into a sinful man. Because, of course, if I'm a sinner, I'm not real comfortable around somebody who's holy because that inherently makes me feel like a sinner and I'm embarrassed. And it's much nicer to have a, have a Savior who's a sinner. Now, the problem with that, of course, is, is that he can't save you. All he can do is sympathize with you. Okay? He can't pay for himself, much less for anybody else. Um, and we have to have his deity... Not only for him to be good, ultimately, but also because his death has to have infinite worth to pay for an infinite offense that's been given to an infinite God. So um, the good news of the gospel is, is that he is indeed divine. And therefore, the attack of Satan and his minions is precisely at that point more than anywhere else. Yes? I think the answer to the question, I think there's a good answer that's given in Gibbons' decline of Rome, where he said... Um, <clears throat> applied to common to the, to the polytheists of Rome, the same thing that happened with Christians is the common people believed 
the philosophers denied, and the politicians said it's a useful tool to manipulate. And when I read, whether it's Spinoza who we talked about to, uh, who's the guy, the author in the 40s, he replied, the British guy, you know, who uh, wrote Brave New World? He said, I don't like God because he interferes with my sexual liberties. So I think the people deny Jesus, it's because they don't like him either because he denies some aspect of their sinful life that they embrace. So the way they solve it is to just get away from the edginess. That's why, because it interferes with their sinful content. A finite center is much more comfortable to be around. (laughs) Well, let's uh, take a five-minute break, and then we'll come back. All right, folks, let's go ahead and uh, start up with part two here. Our goal tonight is to do at least a, a brief review of chapters three and four out of McLeod here. So let me say this now because I will forget in 20 or 25 minutes. Um, we're going to do three and four tonight. So please, for our next meeting together, would you mind reading chapters five and six? That could take you half an hour or more. It depends on how fast you go. Yeah, you're right. So our, our topic tonight, chapter three and chapter four, explore sort of the the implications of the Trinity for first our understanding of God, and then in chapter four our understanding of man, of each other. And so I thought I would take just a few moments here to take a look at, at chapter three. McLeod kind of puts this rather bluntly. Okay, having just been over these first couple of chapters, here's what the Trinity is, here's where we get it out of the Bible, here's what the early church fathers had to say about it. He kind of gets to chapter 3 and says, so what? So what's, what's, what's that mean to us? So there's a Trinity. Big deal. Why should I care? In fact, that's his question. Why does it matter? And he starts off, I don't know, with a pretty simple observation. But it gets more profound the more you think about it. He says, well, you know, first of all, maybe most importantly of all, because it's true. And true things are important for us to think about. They're important for us to engage. It, it doesn't have to necessarily be useful. He, he lapses into just a little touch of criticism of, of uh, contemporary Western culture when he says that we are very focused. You see this in America for sure, right? We are very fo- focused on utility. What's it do? Right? I, don't, I don't care how good it is. I don't care what it's, you know, how meaningful. What, what can I do with it? How useful is it? Show me what I can. Show me how I can use it. And he says that. Now, first of all, it turns out the Trinity is, in a sense, a useful doctrine. But even if it weren't, it is God. It is the way He is presented in Scripture. It is just a true thing, and for that reason, we ought to give it our attention. But then he goes on. He makes some good observations here. I thought we should talk about a few of these. He says that, uh, I'm going to read a passage here. He says, God has not given us this, uh, the great doctrines merely for our intellectual amusement. So it's not just a matter of sort of, you know, rolling it around in your brain and seeing if it, if it feels good. He says he has given them so that, we will, so that they will make a difference to the way we live. So in a sense, he, he kind of moves, it is kind of a practical question of a sort, or at least we might say this, yes, the Trinity is true and therefore worth, worthy of our attention. But in addition to its truth, 
there is a certain practical application of the Trinity in our lives that is, that is worth consideration. He sums it up here uh, this way. This is on page 51 if you want to follow along. He says, practical Christianity, practical Christianity will certainly involve concern for our fellow man and goodwill towards our neighbor wherever we meet him. States that as a given. But it begins with loving God and with expressing that love in humility, gratitude, and obedience. His concern, he's, he's right, is, and I've, cause I've seen this, I know that you've seen this too. Sometimes when we talk about sort of the, the practice of Christianity, the, the practical aspects of our faith, we immediately launch into kind of, you know, what are you doing for the poor? You know, how, what, are you, how are you, what, what ministry are you involved in? Even, I think sometimes even here at Christ Church, we kind of lapse into that kind of vocabulary, right? It's easy to think about, well, okay, I do the, I go to school theology, so that's one, and um, uh, mercy ministry is another one. I do some of that, and I've got to, maybe I'm going to, I might volunteer with the ESL. We'll see how that goes. Uh, those are practical, but you understand what, what, what McLeod is getting at here? All of those are secondary to our primary obligation. Very practical, love God, serve him. Everything else kind of flows from that. And so understanding the Trinity, understanding that God who we love and who we worship becomes very important. It is, in that sense, a very practical doctrine. Although it doesn't affect you know, how many meals I make in a given month to serve the poor. He's, he gives us a few um, insights into God that the Trinity itself uh, reveals for us. The first one he says is mystery. I don't mean to insult anybody's intelligence, but I'm going to put it in the form of a question. How does the Trinity point to mystery? It is a mystery. It is. I don't know how you feel. I find it utterly mysterious. Uh, to this day, I've been at this a long time. I don't understand. If anybody can help me with this, please do. I do not fully understand how... There can be three persons and one God. In fact, the word triune is a very strange word if you think about what it means. Right? It's kind of curious. It's, in fact, mysterious. Does that help or does it hurt? Do you understand what I'm asking? There's a mystery to God. Does that make it harder for us to believe or does it make it easier for us to believe? Understands an infinite God, he wouldn't really be infinite. Wouldn't be infinite. Or we wouldn't really be finite. That's right. That's exactly where McLeod takes. You're exactly right. I think it really depends on your personality. That's probably true. Yeah, depending on how much pride you possess. Well, you see, <laughs> I mean, I can be sometimes good at just like stock issues, like you just have to accept it. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're not very good at that. Yeah. It probably makes it a lot harder. Yeah. So you're right. You're going to have you're going to have doubts and questions. But but fundamentally, I think it still kind of rolls back into the the basic point. If God were finite, if you could wrap your mind completely around Him, if you could contain Him in that sense, you'd be greater than God. That wouldn't be a faith worth having. A God who is greater than we, who we can't fully understand, that might be a God worth believing in. And so I think that's, at least that's where McLeod takes us here. He points also then to the concept of fellowship. How does the Trinity demonstrate fellowship? Well, there's, okay, so there's a couple of things there, right? That, you all hear that, let us make man in our own image, he says in Genesis, right? In Genesis 1. That, that speaks to the idea of, of, of plurality, right? Let us make man in our image. 
So on one hand, you might think he's making man, and that's that's the fellowship. No, no, no. The fellowship comes before. Think about it. Before man existed, before creation existed, God was in fellowship. So there's a, there's a model of fellowship there. The Trinity, there are three persons in fellowship with one another. And so we can... Again, this is another word that uh, in Christian circles, we throw around the word fellowship a great deal. Did you know that fellowship has become a verb in certain Christian circles? Um, so you know, tomorrow when you wake up, you're going to say, oh, we fellowshiped really well last night. You're gonna, you, can, you can use it in different tenses. Um, but in this application, right, the Trinity is in fellowship. A third thing he says here, he says... The Trinity points to, now these seem maybe opposite of one another. He says the, the Trinity points to God's independency. Well, yeah. That's not the term he used. He just uses independence, not independency. <laughs> Is this better? N-C-E. There you go. All right. Good. Thank you. All right. That other one, I don't, I'm not sure I'd find that word in Webster's. You would find independency in the dictionary, yes. Would? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I'm confident. If you can have a dependency, you can have an independency, huh? Sure, right, exactly. Okay. Very similar. <laughs> but this, that saves a syllable, so if that helps. Okay. Yeah, it's in a dictionary. <laughs> it's in Steve's phone, which is in some way better than a dictionary. All my children will become an When will that happen? That's we just said that the Trinity reflects fellowship. How does it represent independence or independency? Well, each part of the Trinity is independent. So, uh, boy, they're groaning. Do you hear that? Like, I, I, I was about to say, that sounds like a good idea, but with all that groaning, I can't. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. So right. That, that, yeah. There's obviously two things there, right? There's right. Jesus. There is the Comforter. They're not the same, right? Somebody. Had, somebody said something. I heard a. Somebody mumbled. Yes. Yes. I think at least for McLeod, that's that's the direction he's going. There is a kind of self-sufficiency more than I say kind of no completely self-sufficient. But they wouldn't be God if they were alone, or they would be. We don't think much about this. That's, I mean, did God, the triune God, exist before creation? Yeah. Clearly, right? I mean, that again. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. So why, why even have creation at all? Was God bored? Was he lonely? Was he in need of a hobby? I'm blaspheming when I say these things. As McLeod puts it, he says, was God developing new interests and so engaged in creation? It's pretty clear, I think, from Scripture. God doesn't need creation. He is, in that sense, independent. The Trinity exists prior to and after even creation. It is eternal. The three persons of the Godhead are eternal before and after creation. It's not depend, he's not dependent upon creation for his being. 
He doesn't need it for anything. He is, and Steve, I'm glad you pointed that out because it's exactly the right word. God is self-sufficient. So in his oneness and his threeness, everything he needs is right there. It's somewhat mysterious, I think, but less mysterious than the Trinity. I don't have a problem coming to grips with the notion that God doesn't need me. And I hate to say this, he doesn't need you either. But some people really do have a hard time with that. I mean, I mean we've got to be careful. We can't start thinking of God, though, as like Siv, the God Siv of as three faces and things like that. Sure, right. That's what Exactly. The, the, this notion of independence gets to the unity of God, not the triunity. I mean, it's, understand, he has both of these things, right? Which is why we can talk of fellowship and independence in the same being. God didn't need some extra external thing to complete himself or to finish off his interest plate. So independence could also be called like self-sufficient. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a, a good way to think of it, that this that God is complete and that the creation is something that he does but not necessarily something that he needs. Do we have any? Now we're now we're going. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I don't. Exactly. I don't have a better answer than that. Yeah, that's the only answer I have too. That, but that's just we're just one little aspect of this huge universe. There's got to be. Yeah. We don't. He doesn't need us to horrify. Right. <laughs> this is the mechanism he chose. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, his will is different. Clearly, he willed creation, right? So that's yeah. that's pretty clear. Right. I mean, it's obvious. I'm going to open up myself for severe ridicule. I can right. feel it coming. All right. <laughs> We're ready. It's a couple people in the back already. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, I shouldn't even wait. Without creation, what use is the Holy Spirit? <sighs> Is that a question for me or for everybody else? For you. <laughs> <laughs> You've been joining me. Yeah. You're going to keep with me. Oh, God. Without if, the work of the Holy Spirit, none of us would accept this. Yeah, he's saying without creation. So if you and I weren't here, what would the Holy Spirit do? Well, I don't know. Whatever. I don't know. But whatever the Holy Spirit was doing prior to creation is what he would be doing. <laughs> We, we tend to think of, and this is understandable, we tend to think of God in the three persons of the triune God in sort of in relation to ourselves. So I think of Jesus in terms of what Jesus does for me. I think of the Holy Spirit in terms of what the Holy Spirit does for me. But they are eternal and infinite beings. So there's much more to what they do than just my part. And just because I can't articulate the rest of it doesn't mean it isn't there. So I don't know the answer to your question, but I'm confident there is a lot to the Holy Spirit that doesn't involve comforting me or the rest of us. That doesn't answer your question, but it evades it pretty nicely, I think. Oh yeah, it's, I, I'm just getting started. One thing that we can uh, assume the Holy Spirit would be doing would be receiving the worship of the angels. That's true. That's a good way to think of it. Sure. I mean, that's that's. There are several images in the Bible where we see exactly that happening. And the implication is this is this is what happens in heaven, right? This is this is how God is received. And in the sense that they are three in one, all three persons of the Godhead are worshipped, including the Holy Spirit. Although would the angels be considered creation? I don't well, that's probably not what you were thinking of, right? I don't I don't know. I don't I think yeah. 
terms of sort of understanding God through the Trinity. And, and now, McLeod does say these last two are very closely related. You almost might say they're the same thing or two ways of saying the same thing. But he says the Trinity speaks of God's completeness. Let me just read you a quick passage here. From This is on page 54, about the middle of the page. He says, the general idea here is that God is happy. And that, that almost sounds simplistic maybe, but that's, that's what he says. He is, now note this, he is free from all tension, frustration, deprivation, discontent, anxiety. Instead, there is peace, harmony, and fulfillment. That is God. That is God's nature all the time. Hard for us, again, to understand, right? Because that, um, well, I would like to say that peace, harmony, and fulfillment are, uh, they, they define my life. It is simply untrue. I identify with the tension, frustration, deprivation, discontent, and anxiety part. I get that, okay, but... God doesn't share that with me in this sense. So God is, is complete in that he has all he needs. And he's in a, imagine being in that state all the time where you lack nothing. We're driven, in fact, largely by the lack in our lives, what we are missing. And so not having that would change things tremendously. That's true. What we, what we, exactly, yeah. That's part of the anxiety notion, right? We think that we should have this and don't, right? I'm very good on, on that. I have a whole list of things I think I should have. We have just a few minutes here. Actually, I, I'm going to take a quick time out. We're, I want to look at chapter four. It's going to take five or ten minutes. It won't take us long. But it is almost 8.30, which means that um, if, you, if you are in here right now and you have kids in Christ Kids, and if you, wanna, if you need to go get them, please feel free to slip out. I, I will, I'll look the other way. I won't even make eye contact if that helps. So if anybody has to leave, please feel free. won't offend me. Just don't curse as you walk out. So chapter four, we just, chapter three about God's attributes understood through the, through the Trinity. Now chapter four is about how the Trinity might inform our attitudes towards one another, towards other humans. And again, he kind of gives us, McLeod does kind of a good list here. He points out, I think, where you started us, actually, in our discussion. McLeod reminds us that, that it's the Trinity that creates, right? It's not, it's not 
just God simply. It is the three persons of God together. So that, that notion of sort of planned, I say planned, that's his word. It's not like God sort of woke up one day, got this neat idea to have creation. It's, it's, I think scripture even points to the notion that, that, that together the three persons of the Trinity plan to create. And it flows from, from a kind of, uh, kind of cooperative effort. He says that's the first thing. The second thing that we should bear in mind is that, very clear in Scripture, we are made in God's image. And, again, that's a plural image. If you, if you go back to Genesis 1, right? Let us make man in our image. Curious way to put it. Image is singular. Our, the pronoun, is plural. As if the three persons have one image. But that's, kind of, it's, that's, that's again, that's the mystery of the Trinity, but it's exactly, I think, what is invoked by those words. So we're talking sort of a planned creation, but also a creation in God's own image, particularly us. That's pretty hard to understand. That, I would say very hard to understand, yeah. When I was, when I was in Egypt, I was at this big pyramid of Giza where Pointy? And, and next to that, yeah, the pointy one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can go inside. <laughs> yeah. Next to them, there's this big boat they found buried. And it, it's made out of planks held together by wood. I mean, I mean held together by rope. Okay, there's full of holes. But it's this boat that goes to the sun, the sun god, Ramses. But imagine, some guy wakes up one morning and says, you know, I've got a good idea. Let me see if I can get 5,000 people together. Let's just build a boat that won't go anywhere. When I see this, this kind of reminds me of that experience. Mm-hmm. God, Father, they get together and say, you know, i got a great idea. I just don't get it. Why? Excuse me, but away. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, I don't think that's much different than the question you asked earlier, though. <laughs> It's. It gets to that. It's like group It it is. Holly, you said a little while ago, right? That why? Well, God. God is glorified by this. Could He have been glorified by something else? Sure. But this is the way He chose, and so I mean, all I can. I can't. I can't answer that question. I can't even add anything to that question. But I can simply say that this is the way he chose, and for that reason, this must be a good way to do it. That does not doesn't begin to answer your question. I have some concerns about the Egyptians. You know, those those, those pyramids are marvels of engineering. But then they thought the sun god rode across the sky in a chariot. Also, the same people. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Pyramids are amazing. <laughs> yeah. I think it just goes to prove that you know God reveals can reveal certain things to cultures. Sure. Like geometry. And so you know even with the pyramids, He let them grow to understanding uh, by studying nature and things, math and science. But He withheld His face from them. Until yeah. Time. Yeah. Well, that's. <laughs> I was. I was just thinking that because as you were speaking, I, there are serious scholars who, I'm talking serious scholars, who look at that and say what they believe is so dumb that they couldn't possibly have the science necessary to build those pyramids. So clearly, something else. It had to be aliens or some other thing. 
What can I say? This, at least, you understand, God makes a whole lot more sense to me than that. Even, even the mysterious parts I don't understand. This may somehow explain the government shutdown. Aliens. Yeah. Aliens are responsible. I, exactly. I, gotta, I better just move on before something bad happens. So starting from those two premises, that together the three persons of the Trinity plan creation, and that we particularly are made in the image of the triune God. Starting from those premises, McLeod gives us four kind of conclusions or four kind of attributes that we should be thinking of when we think of our fellow man. So follow me here. The first he says is equality. See, if you read this chapter, all the, you know this stuff already. I'm just, I'm not even adding anything to your knowledge. What does our creation in the image of God tell us about equality? Yeah, do you get any sense from Scripture that some are made more in the image of God than others? No. On the God scale, Barry's a nine, Jim's a six, <laughs> which is just an upside-down nine. It's close. Yeah, somebody's got to be one, right? Nothing in Scripture suggests that, right? I mean, every the times when it comes up, it seems to apply to all of us. We're all made in the image of God. There's an equality in that, and it's a very special equality. So you understand, we're all made in the image of the eternal God. That is, we should always bear that in mind in dealing with our fellow humans. No matter what condition they're in, no matter how sinful they, they are and whatever particular sins they choose. We're good, by the way, at sort of, you know, sort of categorizing sins. Oh, that's a bad, I wouldn't do that one. The, f the ten I do are fine. The one he does is bad. <laughs> and we kind of rank them. Pardon me? How long, why do you think it took so long for a civilization to realize there's equality of man and every man? Because it seems like you look at, you look at history and you go, there was no there. It sure doesn't look like it, right? Yeah, think yeah. Think we've learned that lesson. Yes, yeah, yeah my, that's that's my thought. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about it some, you know, in the 18th and 19th century. <laughs> How much we even followed through on that, I'm not sure. So, uh, yeah, I, I this is it, it'll be a recurring problem. We don't think of each other as equal even now. No. Yeah, and this might be as good as it's gotten in history, but I'm not so sure that's even that's true. Here's another one for you. So again, these kind of maybe go together, but, but then they seem quite different. Because McLeod points us to, he says, man's individuality. We just said that we're equal, and now he stresses individuality. Yeah, diversity might be, I think, another way, that, another way of thinking what he's getting at here. Does the Trinity inform us about this at all? How so? I heard you say yes. Well, they are. They are, right? I mean, we've been, we've touched on it earlier. Yeah. They're different. One's not um, better or one's not indisposable because they are different. They have different roles and different. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I th that's exactly it. I mean, all of them are God, right? It's not like one person's more God than another person. Now, 
I say that with some hesitation because I don't know if, if you will agree with this, but I think there are certain denominations which emphasize certain persons of the Trinity more than others, and they're different denominations for different persons. Uh, if you've ever spent much time among our charismatic brethren, it's all about the Holy Spirit. They, as though they almost, I have to be careful. My, my, my mother took us to a charismatic church for about four years. So with some experience, I tell you, <laughs> big on the Holy Spirit. Jesus is nice. He has, has some nice stories. God the Father. Exactly. Yeah, it's, I think I heard something about that sometime. And you'll see different things in different in different churches as well. That God the Father sometimes takes precedence in certain denominations. That there's the Church of Christ, for example. Maybe I don't know all about Jesus. I don't know. Correctly understood, you're right. All of those persons are different, and yet, first of all, they're one at the same time. Very hard to understand. But, but which one's is, is one more important? Where would you be without any one of them? You understand my point there? We can't really get along without. But you, it's still wrong, isn't it, to think of God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, that we're looking at one God, but we're only look, we're looking at different aspects. Yeah, don't exactly. Don't think of it as like you know Jesus Christ is sort of God viewed from behind. I mean, it's, yeah. you're right. It's not just sort of it's not a matter of perspective. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a Trinity, really, right? Right. It it. it they have to, for this to work, to, to be consistent with Scripture, what we talked about for the last two sessions, in fact, God really has to be one and really has to be three. It can't, there's, you can't, right, you, I know, that's how I feel. But you can't take shortcuts either way. So you're right. Uh, and I remember hearing this once when I was a kid, hearing a, a sermon to this effect that, well, sometimes God wears his father hat, and then later he takes that off and puts his son hat on. And No, no. These are three distinct persons, and yet they are one. I'm not trying to explain that to you, but I do want you to understand the, the outrageousness of that statement. And there's no way to sort of fix that up from a human perspective, to pretty it up and make it sound better by, you know, depending on how you look at him or what he's doing today or whatever. So you're exactly right. I mean, it's, it's, we take those shortcuts. It's a shame. Let me do two more things here, and then we're going to get out sometime close to our regular time. <laughs> Fellowship. Now, do I need to explain? I think you probably get this, right? There's a fellowship of. No, these are yeah, same word right there. I know it's the same word. Yeah. Are they somehow different? Um, we're we're talking about we're talking about our attributes. Oh, okay. All right. So these are God's attributes revealed through the Trinity. This is how we understand and engage each other also reflected of the Trinity. So yes, there's an equality among us. Nobody's really better than another. We're all made in God's image. We're all uniquely individual, as it were, like the persons of the Trinity, but that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. And then finally, this actually there's a fourth one, so finally so far. Fellowship, yeah, there's the fellowship of the Trinity, but so if we're made in God's image, there's a good, really strong chance that we are actually made designed, created to be in fellowship with others. It makes being a hermit more of a challenge than you might think. The Trinity is, the, you might say, the model of fellowship for us. But we are made for fellowship. And if, and if we sort of start to, and you, don't you get this sometimes? I mean, there are those, you've probably known people who kind of really think they have a good bead on how this whole Christian thing works and don't want anything else around them, don't want the input of, 
of a pastor or, or an elder or just people who have been around for a while. Or what do we see in our culture, especially today? I don't want to read a book that was written, you know, 100 years ago. That's old. I want the, I want the new stuff. In fact, I'll, I'll be the judge of, who, of how this works, right? That's, that's not fellowship, right? That's something quite different than fellowship. So like the Trinity, we are a people of fellowship. We engage in it. And finally, he points to, tell me what you think of this one, order and authority. Is there, how should I put this, is there order within the Trinity? Yes. Absolutely, actually. Yeah, I mean, Jesus actually, this will kind of, this will make your head spin. Jesus actually says the Father is greater than he is. Now, what exactly he means by greater, I think is kind of, there's, there's an important question for us, but one I'm not even going to think of answering, especially not at 20 till 9. <laughs> But there is, I think we can say without controversy, there is order among the Trinity. That is to say, each member of the Trinity, each person, has a role in a sense, right? The Father didn't die for our sins. The Son died for our sins. The Son does not dwell in our hearts, although, by the way, you will find denominations that do say that. They're wrong. But it's the Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts, right? Each part, each person has its proper spirit sort of role in the order of things. And with that order comes a certain kind of authority, right? Jesus has a certain kind of authority as the Son, which is different than the authority of the Father. And when you put it all together, it's all the authority, right? This is, I can't overemphasize the mystery of this, right? So it's not just three things cut, in, or one thing cut into three pieces, right? What does that mean for us in terms of how we relate to one another, McLeod comes to a couple of interesting conclusions. First of all, uh, we, are, we are an orderly species. We actually do better when there is order than when there is not. Disorder is bad for us. Related to that, authority is a good thing. I know that sounds especially since the 1960s in America, we've been against authority, right? No, no. Authority is good. Why is it good? Because, first of all, we have the model of the Trinity, right? So that each... Each person of the Trinity has, a, has authority, sometimes a different authority. They might even overlap to some degrees at times. I won't even try to go down that road. But that's, there's probably some truth in that. But what do we see in our lives? Do our parents have authority over us? That's legitimate. Do husbands have authority over wives? Does the church have authority within its congregation? Does the state have authority over its citizens? All of these are delegated spheres of authority that are perfectly legitimate because, in a sense, they reflect the authority that we see in the Trinity itself. Ultimately, does an authority uh, uh, is, is what really creates order. It maintains That's right, exactly. That's why I think why he puts them together, right? They, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, right? If you don't have authority, you don't really have order, right? And so, so you could, I mean, if you got rid of all, say, all parental authority is now nil, you will not have order. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, on the side here, but as an education uh, major, I read a lot of re research. Um, and I'm sorry. The, um, yeah, I know. <laughs> but the um, rise in attention deficit in mm -hmm. the country mm -hmm. is parallel to the lack of um, boundaries given to toddlers and babies. I mean, like little bitty. 
know, I, yeah, I, yeah. Our, our grandparents' generation said, no, you can only play in the playpen. That's all the space because you're safe there. Yeah. And we're like, we yeah. just like gate the whole house. That's right. We, like, we turned the entire, yeah. 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 Anyway, the point being, the less order and structure we put from three years old down, the, the, the rise, according to this particular research, mm-hmm. in yeah. attention deficit, they can't focus. Our brains were actually made. It's as though we were made that way. Yeah. Order, structure, and authority. Yeah. You can't develop that executive function if you don't have it. That's right. No, exactly. Right. Yeah. I yeah. years trying to figure out how to get the brain to do Well, I've already taken an extra 15 minutes of your time, so I, I'm going to stop here unless there are any, any other questions or uh, wisecracks or anything you want to add before we... Well, thank you all for coming tonight. See you in a couple of weeks.